have you seen me dice bag? The Grognard Files. Hello, my name is Dirt the Dice, and this is the Grognard Files podcast, talking bobbins about tabletop RPGs from back in the day. This is part two of episode seven, a part that I used to call the micro grog pod, but I don't anymore because they're not that small. They never have been. They'll burst through your pod box if you let them. This is a supplement to episode seven that was all about tunnels and trolls. It's one of those supplements, you know, you know the kind of supplements, you know, one, one of those supplements that you think, they're reprinting that again? Why don't they just come up with something new? Following the first part of the episode, it's been great hearing the sound of middle-aged people's knees heading up the ladders to the loft to retrieve their golden box. It even attracted the attention of the creator of TNT, Ken Santandre, who appreciated the podcast despite our, and I'm quoting here, atrocious accents. I know, I know, not quaint, not unusual, but bloody atrocious. Men and women of the North, are we going to stand back and take this? Our proud history of bringing the modern age to the rest of the world? I suggest that we rise up together and head for the desert. Well, maybe atrocious means something different in Phoenix, because, as I said, Ken has been very appreciative of both the Stormbringer and TNT episodes. This is what he said on the grognardfiles.com site. Thanks for the kind words, guys. The usual view of TNT back in the day was that it was a silly game and a rip-off of that other game. Over the years, I've striven to differentiate the two games more and more. Gotta remember, I didn't know what I was doing when I wrote the first edition of TNT. I just wanted a game I could play that would make sense to me and be amusing at the same time. Being serious has always been difficult for me. In this episode, I have a special guest, Big Jack Brass, John Hancock. John was surrounded by his TNT stuff that he's kept hold of over the years and was keen to cover as much ground as possible. I went to the current temporary location of Watson Hall in Staley Bridge, which is on the Manchester Riviera. Now, you might think that there's a sound of buses going past you in this interview, but you'd be wrong. That's the sound of waves gently pulling pebbles across the shingle. You may think you can hear the sound of drunken voices interrupting our discussion. Drunken voices at 10am. But that's the sound of revellers making their way from the seaside bar with cocktails. The interview is interspersed with actual play. That's right, actual play, from Watson Hall Gaming Group. Details on how to listen to more is included in the show notes. Later, Blythe joins me for a bit of actual play of our own, as we take a trip into a solo dungeon. But for now, sit back, cup your mug of strong tea in your hands, grab yourself a few hobnobs, and listen to the soothing tones of Big Jack Brass. 
Ramblers, let's get rambling. Open box. Uh, I've left Dirk Towers and hit the road. The Bolton Wanderer has been welcomed into the warm bosom of Watson Hall, where I'm joined by Bonvier, Cthulhu Breakfaster, Charlatan Humbug, and Twitterer, Big Jack Brass himself, John Hancock. Hello, John. Hello. Welcome to, as you say, Watson Hall, the um, the smaller edition of Watson Hall. We're, we're uh, quite mobile these days. <laughs> this is the annex, is it? Still we did. We did used to have a uh, an annex because we had a second location that uh, was. I think it was Perfunctory Manor. We called that one. <laughs> You're um, the leading expert round our way on uh, tunnels and trolls, and we're looking at tunnels. I'm, and trolls. I'm absolutely not, but thank you anyway. <laughs> um, no, I'm just somebody who stumbled over it years ago, and um, unlike a lot of people, didn't really put it away for thirty years. Yes. Yeah. Well, let's talk about those uh, early days then, uh, John. How did you get started in the hobby? Uh, well, I didn't start sort of massively young or anything. Uh, Warlock of Firetop Mountain is probably the first real hobby thing I got, the fighting fantasy book. I heard about it before it came out, read an article in, I, don't know, I can't remember, some, some probably colour supplement or something, about this new thing that Penguin Books were doing, and um, picked it up supposedly before it was released. Smiths just seemed to have it in fortnight early and loved it so straight away I was there with the solo adventures yes. which I suppose is one reason why Tunnels and Trolls later came along and uh, a friend of mine managed to get hold of a copy of Dungeons and Dragons the, um, the Frank Mensner had written uh, Red Box edition but that wasn't until kind of 83, 84 so I was um, 13 or 14 before I was really doing any group role playing yeah. and a lot of the time we were just playing Car Wars and board games like that so the the actual sort of heavy role playing side probably didn't really kick off till I was in college and met a guy who was all chivalry and sorcery and Cthulhu and uh, yeah. until the job. So, so those, those early days uh, how many were you playing uh, back then? How many did you play with the, the, the uh, red box? Uh, what in terms of the number of people? Yeah. Um, usually not very many uh, sometimes it was just one on one to me and a friend and then maybe three or four was normal only got up to bigger groups uh, about 86 that sort of thing yeah and it was all a bit erratic it was finding other people who played it exactly yeah I mean I remember just the difference between now and then when you find that when I first found this stuff I was having to read things in books about how to read the dice yes which incidentally the reason we mate managed to get a copy of D&D is because we found one a guy put behind a counter because it turned out the dice were missing so somebody brought it back and he sold it to us, saying, well, I don't think you can play it, you haven't got the dice. I'm like, we'll take it, we've been all over town, we'll, we'll take it. So we started off without actually any dice to play. Yeah. Which isn't a problem you have with Tunnels and Trolls, because it doesn't use funny dice. That's right, you can just read the Yahtzee. Mm. And um, so talk about your, your college years then, when you were, you were playing uh, Civil Rear and Shalsbury and um, Cthulhu. How did that go, so how, how did that work out? It was actually, a f- uh, my friend uh, Martin who'd got the D&D, he was in a particular, I think it was an art class with a guy who'd been playing Traveller Chivalry and all that for ages, um, name was Steve Dobson, who I think went on to be a university lecturer, so I don't know if he still games, <laughs> but that was, um, they were sort of an established group of friends that we kind of latched onto, and they played a lot more, they played a lot of the fantasy games, Unlimited stuff, Space Opera, 
aftermath, all the things where people now shudder when they look at them. But that's the sort of group game that I was really starting with. Yeah. Um, whereas, sort of secretly, the stuff in my spare time was fighting fantasy and tunnels and trolls, which is much simpler. Yeah. And doesn't take four hours for character generation, followed by a fifteen-minute session where all the characters die. <laughs> not, not that I'm still bitter about that thirty odd years later. And uh, let, let's talk about your first encounter with um, Tons and Trolls. Then, so how did you come across? Tons well, I found references to it in magazines and things. The first time I ever actually saw it was a copy of Goblin Lake, the British reprint uh, of a, uh, a solo adventure, a very short one, which they had in the Virgin Megastore in London. Uh, I was on a school trip, I think. Uh, and I didn't buy it at the time. And it was it was probably um, eighty six, eighty seven before I actually bought a copy. But I'd seen a lot of articles, few things in White Dwarf, lots of references in Space Gamer, occasional sneering comment in Dragon. Um, so I, I wasn't a sort of early adopter or anything, you know. Mm. And um, the only time I really started to look seriously at it was Warlock magazine, which is the fighting fantasy magazine. Yeah. I think it was that one that had a, uh, an article, possibly by Graham Davies, of conversions to different systems. The idea being that you could go out and get other things and use them with fighting fantasy or vice versa. Um, something which I think we're all a bit obsessed with, making sure that you've got the conversion right. Yes. Then. You had to use something properly. Whereas now I look at it and go, oh, that's a cool adventure, I'll make the numbers up. <laughs> you, know, you, you fret a lot less over these things these days, I think. Yeah. I think that's the, uh, that's the interesting thing, because uh, in the first part of this, we talked about how we kind of... Uh, we were a bit sniffy about tons and trolls. Get out. <laughs> yes, no, everybody was. Um, because, you know, we were very earnest about uh, the games we played and yeah. the worlds we created. Absolutely. I mean, RuneQuest, Ducks, yeah. very, very serious game. <laughs> very serious, yeah. Um, but it's that, <laughs> it was the kind of uh, narratives we used to create that were just, like, vast and mm -hmm. were, you know, um, really mattered. Um, yet, yeah, tons and trolls seemed... Frivolous, yes, and for one shots, and you know, almost dare one say it, fun. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> heaven forbid. <laughs> well, absolutely, yeah. That, that's the thing; it's really had to overcome. And um, TSR hated it because it was considered probably the first example of somebody else stepping on their toes and coming out and playing in their schoolyard. Um, and there was always a sort of. I think it was a bit of a snobbery because when you're mostly dealing with teenage boys, you sort of typical or maybe college age. That was your major market back then. Um, you know, you did find women in role playing, but they were more legendary creatures yes. for most people than than uh, normal. And and I, I think there was very much a thing that if you were playing basic D and D instead of advanced D and D, you know, that was something to be looked down on. Well, I played Advanced D&D, &D and uh, I went back to basic because I actually just preferred the simplicity mm. of it and not sitting there waiting for the GM to find rules that just didn't seem to make any di difference to the real game. Yes. And with Tunnels and Trolls, yeah, I, I, you know, I was genuinely a bit embarrassed about it sometimes. And then occasionally you'd find somebody else who played it, and you realise they were exactly the same. They're sort of, God, do you play it as well? Oh, wow. It was like <laughs> a sort of secret club of, oh my God, I'm a nerd, I've been outed. <laughs> Whereas D and D, I, th I suppose, because it was all the charts and tables and you know, Guizam, Glaive, Glaive, Beck de Corban, Polon, lists or whatever, I think that gave people more mechanical crunch to really get into, which a lot of 
teenagers do like. And it made it feel as though you were sort of mastering something serious and esoteric and difficult. Even the dice were a funny shape. Yes. And Tunnels and Trolls, it was a bit of a sort of an everyman game. It was actually very simple to grasp. The mechanics are, are really straightforward. And um, it was dismissed for that, I think. It, yeah. It was easy to be snobby about it. And I suppose we need to talk about uh, the elephant in the room, which is the uh, spell names. Um, which you can, yes, yeah. <laughs> which were later um, battlerized in the the Corgi reprint, because I mean they have changed a little bit over over the years. Um, the first edition—I don't know if you've ever seen first edition Tunnels and Trolls. I don't have a copy, but they have now made it available as a PDF. Ah, I've I worked from uh, the uh, fifth edition rules, I think, back right. in the day. That's the that's the usual one. This is the first edition reprint. You can just right. swipe through and, yeah. and have a look at that. And it's clearly a much more amateurish sort of thing, typed up, very cartoony illustrations. I think it was Rob Carver did those. Um, you know, it's a really simple, playable game, but it looks a bit like a fanzine of the time, rather than uh, what you'd expect. It wasn't a sort of fancy box set. But they very quickly moved up to a full-on um, multiple editions. It was 1979, I think, 5th edition came out. And through all that, there had been criticism of the spell names. People saying, oh, it's ridiculous. You, you've got a, a healing spell called Poor Baby. You know, yeah. when you, you don't cast Magic Missile, you cast Take That, You Fiend. Well, I don't know about you, but I actually find that quite evocative. Mm. Magic Missile! Yeah. Take That, You Fiend! You're there! You get, <laughs> your, your, your wizard is actually doing something rather than just standing at the back counting through spell list. And you can keep casting it as long as you've got strength to do so, because it's not fire and forget like the D was. Yes. Which actually changes the tactics of the game. And I think I, I, th I think that it's uh, interesting how many of the um, innovations, such as um, the, the magic system, has been adopted by games later. I mean, RuneQuest follows the same pattern, doesn't it, of uh, yeah. having magic points that you uh, use up and expend. And yeah, I mean, in many ways, it's a hugely innovative system. This is the um, the Corgi edition, which was published in the UK, and I think uh, I think it was this kind of format that spun off the Japanese one that gave the game a bit of a burst of life in the late 80s. It was really big in Japan, strangely enough. Um, <laughs> That was about the time that Kent and Andrew said that the zombie may stagger on, but TNT is dead. But basically, by the end of the 80s, he'd regarded it as gone. But it, it wasn't. As he said, the zombie was staggering on. <laughs> and what made him uh, say that? Because nobody was buying, nobody was playing it. The Corgi edition went out of print in the late 80s. They did this, the complete rule book, and then they did about five um, solo adventures with two, two in each, I think. Um, and they were very much aiming to grab the fighting fantasy market. But they were clearly worried about the silliness, because this is the complete rule book. Um, oh, there it is, which is the spell for spotting hidden things, is called Revelation in this one. Right. Oh, go away became panic. Um, glue you is delay. And poor baby becomes restoration. Restoration? Yeah, so you might do up a nice room or something. <laughs> um, but what's really funny, and... Um, it was actually Ken Sandra who pointed this out because I hadn't noticed this one. Um, there is, if I can find it, yeah, they left Zombie Zonk in. That apparently was fine. Um, 
Yeah, Yasamasa is Yasamasa. the one. Yasamasa is actually extremely racist. I mean, yes, it is. Uh, I, had, I had no idea when I read this. And he said he couldn't believe they'd actually left that in. And I think it was the same reason, because I didn't get the reference. I, I wasn't thinking it was like a sort of Yasamasa. <laughs> uh, but that's what it, that's what it was. Um, not that I'm suggesting he's racist, but in, in the 70s, I think that was... Because it's a spell where you're, you, you then become subservient to yes. somebody. I think it was just a little gag yeah. very much of the time uh, but obviously the Corgi editors didn't spot that no. but it's remarkable uh, just flicking through this um, first edition how it remained re- relatively unchanged really. fundamentally yeah there's a few tweaks here and there they um, they did something very interesting with, with Tons and Trolls, if you've read the fifth edition you'll notice things like the monster rating which is their one number way of, of having a, an opponent to fight they change the way that you calculate the damage on it. And what happens usually in um, Tunnels and Trolls, and I think this has changed again for the new edition, the monster takes damage directly off that one number, and the same number is used to generate how much damage it's doing in return. Mm-hmm. Which means that if you actually get in there and start to win, unlike D&D where you're constantly chipping away if you've only just mm-hmm. that bit better than it, in TNT, you would actually start to reduce its combat effectiveness by injuring it. So it's yeah. more sophisticated than it looked. But they tweaked this through the additions. First it was, you, you add a certain amount of it, and then after the first round you add a different amount, and then they changed that. But they always kept saying, the old method was this. You can use that if you prefer, but we like the new one. Yeah. And they didn't just pretend it never happened, and they recognised that people actually might still be playing the old one, and they go, oh, what's this? And they say, look, this is what we used to do. Here's the new one, and you can compare it. Mm. So you've got this very silly game, which is actually treating people like adults. Yes. Yeah. And it's um, it's completely overlooked for that sort of thing because it, it it needs a fairly careful reading, or thirty years of sitting and reading, um, <laughs> to notice that sort of change. Yes. You know? Yeah. Yeah, because it 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 does have a chapter on. Um, Personalising monsters, doesn't it? Um, so it is possible. A whole to, spin-off game, on yeah, it. Um, uh, which which we'll perhaps talk about. Um, but I I think on reflection, you know, they were saying saying earlier, you know, we, we we were kind of dismissive at the time. Reading now, you realise how uh, how much it has kind of inspired indie games and yep. uh, that kind of flexibility and approach. Well, it it effectively had a universal mechanic, although they didn't realise it early on. Yeah. Um, the saving role, which people these days have, I've had a few people online when we're referring to it, and they said, "Well, why are they called saving rolls? It's not like a saving throw in D and D. You're not mm-hmm. actually saving." And I do feel sometimes like saying, "Cause that's just what they were calling it in the '70s, and they stuck with it. Yes. You know, just it's what it's called. Move on." But you would effectively take one of your attributes, and early on it was luck, which was I don't think in any other games mm. around that time. And you would make a roll at a certain level uh, against your luck. And quite quickly, I think, people realised that in some situations, maybe um, you could use that against your intelligence or your strength. So suddenly, this simple mechanic has become, instead of save versus death ray, save versus poison or whatever, it's just obviously, yeah, I can save against my speed, which was another characteristic they introduced later, uh, to try and dodge from under something. And that means you can then sort of negotiate with the GM for what you're doing. So in combat, I'm going to dash between the giant's legs and my hobbit is going to stab him with his little rapier or whatever. And that's not really covered in the regular combat rules. So the GM would just go and make a level four saving roll. Mm. And the 
the way you do it, you could either just look it up on a chart, what the saving roll is, or it was the level number times 5 plus 15 minus your attribute. And that sounds far more complicated than it, it really is. It is in play, yeah. But a level 1 means then that if you've got a, a luck of 12, a level 1 saving roll on your luck is 5 times the level, so that's 5, plus 15, so that's 20. So it's 20 minus your luck. So you've got to do 8 or more on 2d6, doubles, add and roll over. Mm -hmm. So you've also got exploding dice, which is something that came in yes. to a lot of games later. Yeah, uh, It's remarkably innovative. And I think part of the reason is that it wasn't written by a war gamer, it was written by a science fiction and fantasy fan who liked games. Yes. But it didn't grow out of just the wargaming tradition, so it doesn't hark back to a copy of Chainmail, and mm -hmm. you know, you're supposed to use that, but you actually use the alternative system, which then everybody picks up. And it doesn't have those sort of gaps, it's self-contained, and it's much easier to understand, because it doesn't presume you're part of that little subculture. Yes, and uh, I think we argue uh, that it could be seen as the first role-playing game. Gen genuinely the first role playing maybe yeah I, I think the fact that it, it did have those shoulders to stand on because yes. nobody knew how to write if you go back and look at D&D &D, um, you think yes is, is this a role playing game it, it, it barely addresses role playing at all 5th mm -hmm. um, edition of Tunnels and Trolls as we'll touch on has things about how to develop your character and the wider world outside of the dungeon because it also gets dismissed as oh it's it's an old school game, it's all about dungeon bashing. Having said that, I played a dungeon bash with it a few weeks ago. <laughs> um, but it, it is a game where you can really do a lot because the rules don't constrict you in quite the same way that the, the more rigid D&D structure tended to be. It's more a game about what you can do, because you can yeah, make a saving roll, fine, I'll accept that, rather than what you can't. You're a wizard, you can't wear armour. Well, you can in TNT. Yeah. However, wearing heavy armor affects your strength, and it's strength you're using to, you know, if you haven't got the strength to wear a load of load of armor, um, you aren't going to be casting spells very effectively because you're kind of a puny wizard. You do then move on to other quirks of the system, like you have to keep upping your strength, yeah. which means wizards eventually end up able to sort of kick down dungeon doors and <laughs> use warhammers. Yeah, that's uh, that, that's one of the things that we picked up actually. That idea that you have to have a very buff uh, wizard uh, yeah. to succeed, and that's been uh, changed, hasn't it, in subsequent? Uh, uh, it changed in I think it was the thirtieth anniversary, which was done by a different company, uh, Fiery Dragon. Uh, I've not dealt. I've got the thirtieth anniversary. It was a little tin, and it came with a CD, and it it was a bit of a rush job. And I believe the Fiery Dragon actually um, they sort of rewrote the game and then when Ken saw it he didn't like what they'd done so he did a quick rewrite but the result is that it, it isn't as smoothly edited then that became 7th edition and 7.5 which was the final one of that little run and that introduced um, Wiz I think it's called which is a development of something Ken used to call Krem it's effectively one of his house rules yeah. um, and you do then have a separation between your strength and your magical battery, effectively. Yeah. So you don't need the buff wizard. Uh, yeah. I'll be honest, I don't use the new rules. But <laughs> as far as I'm concerned, if you want, to, you can increase your attributes, and it's your choice what you do at the end of, of every level. Yeah. You get to add to your attributes. So you can play somebody who becomes more and more lucky. If you're a wizard, you're a bit constrained because you've got to have a certain amount of dexterity and intelligence to cope with higher level spells. 
But if you wanted to, you could stick with those lower spells and turn yourself into Schwarzenegger and um, just keep firing out, you know, take yeah. back your fiend all day. <laughs> Alternatively, you can stay just strong enough to keep casting them, but you're really intelligent and can do lots of spells. Except you might cast a spell and then you've got to sit down and rest for half an hour. Play. You're all going to be playing monsters, and you're going to be assigned the task of infiltrating a keep and opening the door for the monster army to go in and take over. So you're the bad guy. So we have uh, Tinker, the gremlin. There are some notes on these about the strengths and weaknesses. Who I wouldn't mind on. playing if anybody... Margot, the Larmia. Jeremy, the dark elf, who is a magic user, so has access to the noble book of spells there. Uh, Shifty Pitflaps, the goblin, who also has a small amount of magic. I should point out, sadly, we haven't been drinking so far. So. This time. Oh, we, need, we need to find <laughs> out who's got to drive, don't we? Yes, uh, Hefty the Troll, or Benny the Shoggoth. Shoggoth. Yes. Now, I'm going to tell you now, <laughs> Benny has some Issues. strengths and weaknesses which could potentially be awkward for the, the player. It depends. You have to bear in mind, he's 30 feet high and weighs 1,800 pounds. He does roll 20 dice plus 185 in combat, which is more than the usual kind of 2d6 plus 6 or whatever. Uh, but he's absolutely terrified of fire and can be easily distracted by piccolo music. So you have to bear in mind that there are strengths and weaknesses. So have a look he, he through. does actually have a charisma stat. Have a look through. Uh, he does, but it's an exclamation mark, which means it inspires terror. Ah. Okay. okay. Um, <laughs> so have a, look, have a look through those, see what you fancy. <laughs> I, I'm going to be Margot the Lamia. I'm quite happy to be sugar. You're going to be the charming one who likes to seduce men. I yes. eat babies. Yes. Mm. Okay. If you want to sort of look at it from how is it, how is it going to work as a party, mm. you may need to you know chat amongst yourselves I'm and, and negotiate how well we're doing. Well, we still I'll got a dark half, half a goblin and a, and a troll uh, in reserve here. I as think options. we have something of a combat character with Benny the Shoggoth. Well, yeah, unless you're oh, up against somebody fire. with fire. Fine. What, what are the chances of a fire? <laughs> what are the chances of fire with if I play the it's gremlin? Who, the, the, the gremlin who basically well, um, fire is can't a occur at night. Too. <laughs> fire can't occur at night. No. To get drowned What's in the dark. What's my int score? Thirteen. Yeah, okay. no, it's very good. Oh, this Margo is the system where you spend spell points and then fall over because you haven't got enough spell points. It's <laughs> strength. It comes yeah. up to strength. I'm kind of. Either Jeremy or, or Tinker. Tinker was the one I uh, who, who called to me, but Jeremy mm -hmm. kind of is calling to me now with a suave, sophisticated. He's got take back your fiend, which. Is oh, I, I originally <laughs> thought of him as, as basically played by Alan Rickman before I started doing the whole carry on thing. Yeah. Yes, indeed. Um, so, so who who am I looking like then? I can't remember who. Oh, anyway, was. well, in the original, yeah, I got more of a Jeremy Kenneth Williams was Kenneth Williams. Oh yeah. <laughs> Um, oh, maintenance. Yeah, my original <laughs> my original film lineup for all this: Benny would have been Bernard Breslau, Hefty the <laughs> Troll, played by Jim Dale, Shifty Pitflaps the Goblin would have been Terry Scott, yes. Jeremy by uh, Kenneth Williams, Margot played by Fenella Fielding, and Tinker the Gremlin, Peter Butterworth. <laughs> oh, Peter Butterworth, yes, I do apologise. Yeah, um, but are we are we happy? Yes, with, uh, yes. I think yes. I should, I should, a Lamia, a Dark Elf, and a Shoggoth go into a pub. <laughs> yeah. All right, nobody's right. going for the Gremlin. Yeah, I decided not. So here's the setup. It's um, it's late at night. You are all outside Bunko Keep, where I was originally going to call it Rumpo Keep, but I decided that the carry-on thing was getting a bit too much. The main defending force have been called away, and on hearing this, the monster army 
has moved into position, thinking that with a reduced force, if they can just get the gate open, they can swarm in, take the place, establish a stronghold. Uh, so under General Hangnail, uh, this plan has been formulated, and it's been slightly overcomplicated by the appearance of Overlord Spleen and his army, who've come along and joined up, but there's a bit of tension between Hangnail and Spleen. Now, you all work for one or the other of them, ostensibly. So if you could all roll a d6, please. Yeah. And you may want to just make a note on your character sheet. If you rolled odds, you've arrived under the army of General Hangnail, and evens its Overlord Spleen. God. And this, of course, everybody would know. Uh, I'm a Spleeny. I'm, I'm a Hangnail. So what, we've got two, two Spleens and a... Hangnail. And a Hangnail. Right. Uh, okay. I'm here in the shoggle. Our Spleens. So, um, obviously, Spleen wants to take over the whole army. Hangnail would rather take over the other half of the army, so there's a bit of a conflict there. Well, Spleen sure is the Overlord, so I mean, well, I think that settles that overlord. question. Well, but that's yes, not, Overlord isn't a military rank, so is that really anything at all? That's a, that's a sound, <laughs> you know, it's like Mr. and Doctor. I mean, really, which one sounds more impressive? <laughs> You've been selected um, after, after a very, very careful process of you didn't get away fast enough uh, when they came around looking for volunteers to head in and either open or oh, no, I destroy think, I the gate. I think I might have volunteered. I think, oh. I, I think, I think Jeremy is a, a rather a go-getter. Right, in that case, he, di- he didn't know what was about <laughs> to come we've up. We've not got a yuppie dog. <laughs> Benny just didn't move quick enough. <laughs> well, Benny can't move quick enough. <laughs> you know. And then someone pointed at him and he didn't know what I'll very quickly about. run over the character sheet. Are there any, any parts of it you don't what understand? Because... N for speed? <clears throat> N is normal. You, ru- you move at normal human speed. F is you're faster than a human. Right. Normal. Charisma, if you've got a question mark or an exclamation mark, <laughs> it's explained further below. Ah! These character sheets, somebody put on the internet, they're actually, I think, originally fighting fantasy or something like that. So I don't seem to have any weaknesses, which is excellent. Do you not? No. Mm. How I mean, lucky, obviously, you've missed... How very lucky that is. <laughs> you've obviously missed lucky, out a, lucky you. a one in my luck box. I can change it to one if you prefer. <laughs> <laughs> uh, when it comes Finish to combat, luck. you... You make your own luck. There, there are two things you can do in combat. If, you, if one of you decides to fight something, then you just... Roll and uh, so, I for example, we'll with a dirt, we'll it would be Benny into combat. Yeah. What, what would happen <laughs> if you found one person and let's say Margot charged into combat with her dirk? You roll one die plus two plus your ads. So in that case, you're actually rolling one die plus, plus two, two minus, minus four. four. So that's not a lot. Right. However, you can attack on mass, in which case you all roll dice plus your ads, and then you add them up and you compare it against the total for the other side. So, so then the winning side... Can I put in perspective how much I would help with my one dice plus two mm. compared with what was Benny's attack? 20 plus 185. Okay. <laughs> you could just tip the balance. I could just tip the balance. Bear in mind this is or a, I stealth, could just push Benny this is a stealth mission and one of you has decided to play a 30-foot high blob. <laughs> right? A see-through blob. He can just pretend Largely. he's a very slow-moving cloud. <laughs> Yes. Oh, looks like rain. we'll just walk in front of him. Looks like rain, and he can just sneak in behind us. That's pretty much the, the, the plan. So, uh, Sergeant Longrot is going to outfit you for this uh, thing. So you're all standing there in line, right? Everybody, line up, line up. So um, we've uh, got the mission all sorted out. You're simply going to sneak in, yes, open or destroy the gate, and uh, make some sort of signal. We'll what leave that up to you. Signal. 
I, I meant half snake. It's going to be a lot of sibilant S's. Right. Not With French, a then. slight German lilt. <laughs> <laughs> I'm an evil snake. Uh, <clears throat> Corporal Agent Corps here will issue you with your kit. We have uh, oil skins to keep any equipment dry. Uh, breathing Can we tubes. Not just push equipment into the shog off. Oi. <laughs> not a jack to that. Uh, breathing tubes and, of course, the uh, experimental explosive mine. So, uh, sorry, what was the last one? The uh, experimental explosive mine, uh, which you may want to use on the gate. So, um, do we have a volunteer oh, to carry the I think I'll carry never the, before uh, tried experimental explosive mine? Oh, no, I'm quite happy to carry the. Uh, yes. I don't the like things that go and bang. And the tinderbox that goes with it. Ah, yes, please. Right. You keep so that you have experimental <laughs> explosive mine. In the event that you Is cannot open problem, the gate, you can use this to try and breach the gate or the wall at some point. <laughs> that may be a problem. The setup with the castle, uh, you would roughly be able to see this, I think. Oh, maps. It looks a bit like um, that. I don't know if you've been to Harlech. Yes. <laughs> it's a bit like Harlech, Harlech castle, castle, because that's all I could get on the internet. It um, doesn't look entirely like that, but that's the rough layout of the game. You too, Shep No. Uh, <laughs> and essentially you've got a sort of central courtyard, several towers. There is a moat around it, and, it's and it's a drawbridge. And it is, of course, raining. Because I've never been to Harlech. You're all right, been, it's cause, cause you all right with water. Are you Benny? Fine with water, actually. Yes, No, Benny's fine with water. Shoggoths can live at the bottom of the sea. Matter of fact, out of so all of you, Benny's the one who doesn't need the breathing tube. Breathing tube. Benny doesn't need any equipment. Dude, just <laughs> the oil skins, Benny breathing hasn't got tube. Pockets. <laughs> Snakes he can do make not need pockets. a breathing tube, presumably. Uh, you're not entirely a snake, and snakes do breathe. Do I get to choose which half of me is a snake? <laughs> No. I feel I feel no, unfortunately no. that uh, your top half being a snake may actually limit the adventure. You, really yeah. your little legs. you, can, <laughs> you can pass for human, but only your feet. Only my legs. You're just going to keep sort of putting a seductive leg out yeah. every time. Uh, yes, that will perhaps not go. Uh, why did I call this adventure the creeps on the borderland? Now I remember. Games master screen. Uh, I'm going to put this uh, Games Master screen in front of us. Now, I don't know if this Tones and Trolls ever have a Games Master screen. It did, and they've just effectively done a sort of special limited um, remake of it. It's this. Ah. It's a three-ring American binder. This is the new version. I've only ever seen the old one come up on eBay once, and frankly I wasn't going to pay 50 quid for a, a vinyl binder. And it looks just like a binder, except if you... Let's have a look. You've got your notes in there, and the, the tables were on sheets. Yeah. You do that with it. It folds up as an easel. And this wasn't something they manufactured. They, these are available you know, from various places in the States. Just uh, the, the middle spine with the rings on it effectively then become, forms a triangle as the cover folds back on itself. So you then have an easel in front of you that forms a GM screen. But at the end of the session, you just close it, and that's your binder. That's a thing, um, that is a thing of genius. Isn't that intelligent? <laughs> and that, however, is... It now has a cardboard screen. I don't think it ever had one before the deluxe edition that came out fairly recently. And it, it, it's a more conventional screen, the new one. So so the ring binder screen, when, when did that come out? The original one, it came out uh, either the late... I think probably early 80s, and they're, they're collector's items. But that was done for the Kickstarter, this sort of deluxe um, remake version that I got. 
Yeah. And it was only available on the Kickstarter, and I noticed that Noble Knight, had got, they might still have it in stock for $125. So right. if, you, if you want a fiver's worth of um, plastic ring binder <laughs> at, a, at a premium price... That folds out. That folds out rather beautifully. <laughs> I, actually, Paul of Cthulhu from Yogg-Sothoth, he spent ages constructing his own version of that because he thinks that's so clever. Yeah, I can imagine. He's, yeah. he's a fan. Yes. Okay, well, let me uh, roll on this table. Right okay. Oh, we've got a number one. So uh, this is about character class and spell use. So, yeah, it's um, it's a key difference, I think, between how Dungeons and & Dragons and virtually every game that copied it for a while and Tunnels and & Trolls operates. You don't really have a character class as such in TNT. There are these three character types. You can be a warrior, a wizard, or a rogue. And the rogue was you know, not necessarily a thief, because what defines them... Warriors can't use magic at all. You're talking about people like Conan and so on, and they always give these um, examples from fantasy, because as I say, it grew out of, of fantasy and science fiction fandom, so they, they love that stuff. Or you can be a wizard, obviously. Wizard can use all the spells and everything. Um, you don't particularly have restrictions as such on fighting, but you, in the 5th edition, you, you're not as effective at using armour. So you ended up with a situation where warriors were quite hard to hurt and could use all the weapons, can't cast a single spell. Wizards, not so good with the armour, so if you actually get an arrow in there you can take them down. Um, they could end up quite tough, but they were mainly using the magic. And then the rogue was just a character that... Um, it's a bit like Kuzal Clever from The Dying Earth and uh, the yeah. Grey Mouse. They can be quite good with weapons, and they can be reasonably good with magic. But they're never going to be as, as good a fighter as the warrior is, really. And they're never going to be Gandalf. Um, who actually is a terrible example, because he just does things like set fire to pine cones. I don't know, I don't know where his rep came from. Um, so they can only use up to sort of 7th level spells. And they can't take advantage of things like a magic staff and, and little accoutrements. So that's really all that's, that's restricting your character choice. And then you can be whatever race you want, right up to being a, a vampire or a skeleton. Or a, uh, we had a shoggoth in one game. Uh, it's called Benny. Um, so if you have a character idea, your background concept, you don't have that thing of sort of, well, I want to be, um, you know, well, let's say Gandalf again. He uses a sword, but he's a wizard. D&D's mm. early classic dichotomy. Though, how do you make Gandalf and D&D? And the answer is you can't. You have to break the rules, effectively. Yeah, which is fine, but the one thing that everybody immediately thinks of, you can't do straight off. So I just liked that that difference. Um, it it seemed more open. It seemed freer. You could come up with your own ideas yeah. more easily within the character class. Certainly, I remember um, with the rogue class, you could create some really colourful characters very easily. Mm -hmm. You know, we used to make some real Gonzo type uh, characters. Uh, it, it does lend itself to that, yeah, yeah. for better or worse. <laughs> Um, with some real uh, st strange abilities and things, so I think that that that's true. And I I do like how the um, attributes are kind of the centre to it. At the time I noticed in the most recent edition, they've got things like talents, haven't they, and things like that. Yeah, which grew out of um, there've been various attempts to sort of put a skill system onto Tunnels and Trolls through the eighties. The most commonly used one, Mike Stackpole did, and it appeared in Sorcerer's Apprentice and became kind of the basis for Mercenary Spies and Private Eyes, which was a, a sort of pulp and modern 
um, spin-off game, effectively. It's very, very similar in its rules. But it's more based around skill, because it's a more serious game, you understand. Yes, yes. Um, which is fine. And then that article, I think, reappears in the reprint of 5th edition, which they jokingly called 5.5, after D&D had its 3.5. They just... I think, I think actually what happened was they changed printers... And the printer they went to, they were going to have a load of blank pages at the end of the, the reprint. So they, they used to just put extra stuff in whenever they reprinted stuff. It's a great company. So you got that um, put in with, with the skills, but it was a bit clunky and not really TNT-like. And I think things like talent, it's an attempt to give your character that the sort of thing people expect these days, a bit more, you know, well... I don't know. Can I uh, can I reef a sail on a thing? I grew up by the sea in a yeah. fishing port. Why can't I, I have specific skills that this guy from the city doesn't have? Uh, so it's designed to to be a little bit simpler, but still give you that differentiation if you feel you need it. Yeah, Judge Blythe uh, really didn't like the uh, spell system in uh, in, uh, in in TNT. Well, but I'm, I'm not surprised. I have I have listened to your show, and I uh, I, I, I did expect that. <laughs> Um, so he, you know, it, it's also I suppose he had a different view in that they lacked a, a bit of colour and a bit of uh, yeah. excitement about them. Yeah, that you you can look at it that way because one of the things that you find with games, if you open something up a little bit, you're being less specific, obviously. Yes. And it's the problem that um, generic systems have always faced. If you make a system that lets you do absolutely anything then it's not exactly precise and colourful about doing any one thing. So you, you end up to the point where you've almost got no rules and all description, at which point people say, well, why have you got the rules anyway? And TNT goes a little bit down that, that route compared to D&D, where people were really getting into specific spells, lots of different choices, and then that whole spell slot system where you are sort of fine-tuning your character to start with. And that just isn't really... Tunnels and Trolls, if you're after that, it's not likely to be the game that really hits all the, the high points for you. Yeah. Well, shall we roll again? Let's. Yeah, okay. Six. So this is oh. uh, Do This When You Get Out. Do This When You Get Out. Tunnels and Trolls has a reputation for being um, a, a silly, easy to dismiss game that's just about fighting monsters in dungeons. And the reason for this, I think, is very simple. Um, it had a number of solo adventures, which tended, although not exclusively, but tended to be about fighting monsters and dungeons. And it was of an era where that's mostly what people were doing, and things that weren't about fighting monsters and dungeons were starting to be kind of um, new ideas or, or a fresh way of looking. Lots of White Dwarf and so on go on about city building and um, adventures beyond the dungeon. And it was clearly... Most people expected you'll be playing in a dungeon at that time. So if you've got a game grounded there, particularly one that doesn't have a massive advertising budget and isn't quite as prominently, obviously, releasing a new edition as D&D or whatever, it, it can appear to be stuck in the past if you don't actually look at it. But 5th edition here, section 2.6, do this when you get out. What you should do in terms of the bookkeeping and so on with your character when they get out of the dungeon. And it gives you um, options for... Um, what you need to do if you've got some loot, you know, um, you don't just automatically level up. You also don't get experience for finding gold in TNT. It's considered its own reward. So you've got to go off and find the gem merchant or whatever. That's fairly straightforward. But then you've got a fairly extensive section 
tackle more about city world and dungeon building. And that's exactly what it's about. It's not about building whole continents. It touches on what happened with the um, the original Phoenix players, because Phoenix Arizona is, is the where the game was was sort of conceived. And all this is already in there. So this again, this sort of silly, frivolous game that nobody takes seriously. That you can't have a sensible adventure. There's a guy. Uh, it talks about one of the characters who became an NPC because he got so rich dungeon delving. He set up as a moneylender. Right. And it started to open branches in in places around the continent that they were designing. That isn't just a you know a, a kill the monster and take the treasure activity. You're moving into the local economy and affecting it, and then becoming a, an NPC, lending money to adventurers to equip them to go to a dungeon. It makes the world really big and open, and it points you in the direction of something more than being the next module, which is yeah. just as well because they only made about three or four. <laughs> And I thought that was terrific. And has, has there ever been a, a, a fixed setting for Tunnels and Trolls? Have they ever produced one? Not exactly. This is the first British edition, which was based on the... Um, I've never seen that before. That's uh, uh, yeah, like the, a black cover. Yeah, this was published by uh, Strategy Games in 1977, and I think it was the second US edition plus the supplement, and kind of combined. It's got very unfamiliar... Illustrations because it's not Liz Danforth, it's not Rob Carver, it was all, all new, and it's the little A5 format which became common for the British version compared to the sort of 8.5 by 11 uh, version for that. <laughs> this has a sort of example setting which I think they call Warrior World, and it's very, very much a sort of here's a possible setup, and it's kind of a dungeon bash. By the time you get on to the fifth edition, particularly through the solos, they'd started to sort of give you glimpses of the home campaign of the people who wrote it. The city, uh, the continent of Ralph, and then you got the um, the city of of Terrors, um, all these little places like Kazan, which was um, Kent and Andre's home city, which then I think gets raided during one game and demolished, and um, because they're all playing monsters in that one. So there was this sort of unofficial background thing that you kept seeing little bits of, a little bit like Traveller was originally. But they didn't publish a setting, and the closest it's got is the new edition does have a substantial section detailing that world, troll world, and, and giving you that option. I don't think it's particularly necessary. I mean, a game manages perfectly well for 30-odd years without having a published setting. And in some ways, I wonder if it's not restrictive to say, here's a fairly detailed setting, because how many people get put off... Empire of the Petal Throne or RuneQuest because they look at Tecomel and Glorantha and go oh blimey I couldn't yeah. possibly run that certainly that's what I found liberating about playing uh, TNT back in the day the, that fact that you didn't need a setting you could just make something up Yeah. and uh, and, and that thing as well of uh, making it up on the fly as well so you know if, uh, it was good it, for that yeah um, and I, you mentioned um, Ken's game and I, I believe that uh, one of your characters makes an appearance doesn't it Big Jack Brass, yes. Um, he ran uh, play-by-mail, or actually play-by-email it was then, and it was the late 90s, so I rolled up this character, Big Jack Brass. My friend Martin, who I... Uh, we started playing D&D together in sort of 83, he had a character in it as well. Um, and when it was finished, it, it had gone quite well. Um, <laughs> Big Jack Brass had survived, partially deafened, uh, and he'd sort of been cornered by a god, because the Gristlegrim dungeon that, that Ken wrote um, it's basically run by a god 
And I, I had an argument with this god, and um, eventually, he said, rather than just kill me out of hand, um, I'm conflating myself and the character now, um, <laughs> Big Jack Brass actually became a wandering monster in one of Ken's dungeons for a time. And uh, Ken sort of tidied up the, the um, email exchanges and did it as a story, and it was published in a couple of magazines, and he's just released it as a, as a PDF you know, really? 15 years after the event yeah. so you can read it. I think he's called it The Last Adventure of Big Jack Brass which I found a bit, bit ominous I'm not, <laughs> I wasn't consulted on the title and uh, I, th- I think I would have objected <laughs> I'll have to see that, that's great ok, I'm going to uh, roll again well, this is a 2 and uh, we've covered this but it'd be interesting to get a bit more detail and that's Solo, Solo Games Solo, yeah um, Flying Buffalo who published it and um, the play. They didn't invent the solo adventure, and they didn't invent that sort of paragraph format because that goes back to um, experimental French art, and um, mm-hmm. there were also military training manuals that used a sort of choose this, choose that format. But I think it was 1976 they came up with the idea of the solo adventure if there's no one around. So instead of it just being what D&D's solo things used to be, I think the back of the uh, AD&D books had a sort of roll a six, or you've come to an intersection, and and you just basically plot out a dungeon and roll some things as you come up with. They would write out a plot, and you'd you'd get to that junction, and if you want to turn left, you turn to 6A, and if you want to turn right, you turn to 12E, or whatever it was. Mm. So there's actually a plot in there. And they very quickly expanded out to things like the... um, City of Terrors. Well, I'll just lean over here because you can see the. This is the first one. This is Buffalo Castle. Ah, yes. Um, and that, that came in with the um, fifth edition box. Yeah, 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 that's the one sort of virtually everybody's playing. Yeah. They did little pocket versions. This was Goblin Lake. That was the I first, used to have first that. thing I ever saw. I used saw. to have that uh, Goblin Lake, yeah. Uh, interestingly, the second solo adventure, again, sort of innovative all the time. They're all written by different people as well. There's a lot of contributors. This one is for dead characters. The idea is if you've died during Tunnels and Trolls, you could possibly play through this, and if you were lucky, <laughs> really lucky, you could come back to life. So you can turn up at your GM's campaign and go, right, you know, I'm back, I've done it. I've, the only thing I find weird is they've actually included this one in deluxe Tunnels and Trolls. Right. Now, if that's your first exposure to Tunnels and Trolls, that means that you have to have a dead character to play. So I, I didn't quite follow that myself, but <laughs> City of Terrors, that's the one that it is a big city and you can wander all over the place it's not a linear sort of thing so it was um, a very different approach and again that was about 78 that came out again it wasn't just all about dungeons you were meeting characters yes and it's not a surprise that it's written by Mike Stackpole who is best known these days as a, as a best selling author of Star Wars novels and his own stuff as well and then things like Sorcerer Solitaire and various others they have this magic matrix where you can use spells in a solo adventure and you get to choose what you're using and then cross-reference to find out what the result is. They're quite sophisticated as they go on. Yes. And some of the early ones are actually terrible. There's a couple that were rewritten by people and then republished. And if you ever see the, the first version, um, I think Weird World is quite, quite a famous one for not actually being very good. But there was a huge demand for the stuff, so they're putting these things out and trying stuff new all the time. Recently, I've uh, I did uh, one uh, sword for hire. Yeah, and yeah. 
I find that it, it, it reminded me how uh, fatalistic uh, they could be. You know, take the wrong turn and, you know, they just kill you outright. <laughs> There's a few of that, yeah. yeah. But also, um, Death Trap Equalizer, which uh, was one of Kenton Andrews, I think that was the second solo, it had a lot of that. It had a lot of instant death, but it also had a lot of you teleport in, um, get an amazing reward, and get out safely. And you, you'd end up with characters with like mad swords and hands made of living diamond, and incredible <laughs> attribute boosts. And it, if you weren't careful, it could go really berserk. <laughs> so later on, they started to develop a way of allowing um, characters of different levels with different attributes to play the same solo as somebody very low down and have the same sort of chance of surviving it. So again, they, they were actually innovating and developing all the way through, and I don't think they really get the, um, the the credit for that. Because although it had a bit of a resurgence because of fighting fantasy, the Tunnels and Trolls uh, direct competitor, the Corgi edition, caught that wave a bit too late. By 86, the fighting fantasy books were, sales were declining, there were too many competitors on the market, and yeah. they missed that. But these original ones, which were just... They weren't a complete game. You needed a copy of Tunnels and Trolls, and then you bought a solo. For somebody who didn't have anyone around or all the time, it was brilliant, because you felt like you were part of a world, playing a game, your character was developing. And then exactly the same rules worked really well for group play. Mm. And that was a big thing. Um, Fighting Fantasy was a terrific, simple system for the solo adventures that they published but it wasn't really enough as a, as a group they, they did publish it as a, yeah, as yeah. a group game then they did an advanced version when they realised that it was kind of lacking yeah. but you can see that they've converted it one way rather than the other You know, it's, yes. it, it was designed for, for simply sitting there with a paperback and playing on a bus I think the uh, solo games influenced the games that uh, are going to write and create um, so that idea of uh, formidable traps and uh, you know uh, it, taking the wrong turn could lead to uh, t terrible consequences, kind of inspired. Because that, that's that's another thing we should say, isn't it? That the um, it's the traps and the uh, yeah. Well, that, that became thing. something in itself. That, um, Flying Buffalo came up with Grimtooth's traps, which yeah. um, still around, and became a very very successful selection. That are, um, at least eight. I can't remember how many there are now. They're not numbered sort of sequentially, but there are various ones that aren't numbered as well. So I think there's about eight or nine books, just full of dozens and dozens of utterly impractical, stupid <laughs> traps that you can never include in a in a game. And then genius ones that are so simple and aren't necessarily in and of themselves fatal. There's one with a magical gem in a vase. Yeah. And you can see this thing. And if you put your hand in and reach it. The moment you touch your gem, your hand swells up like you've got a gigantic boxing glove on, so you can't get your hand out of the vase. The vase turns out to be indestructible. That's when your wandering monster turns up. <laughs> as you're now, I've done that where you've, you've sort of got a dwarf who's had to reach all the way in, you know, and he's got it, and he set himself off, and he's realised, right, I've got an indestructible club on my arm, I'm going in. <laughs> and that's the sort of stuff you love. It's not an instant kill. It could get someone killed because perhaps they can't use their weapon now, but it can also be something the player turns to their advantage. Yes. Some of the others, like a springboard, where if you decide, oh, I'll just take a dip in the pool, and you bounce off the board, you never stop going up. <laughs> so your guy just heads off out of the atmosphere. That's a bit of an instant kill for most characters. Um, although not necessarily if you were playing a leprechaun, because in Tunnels and Trolls they can teleport anyway. 
Uh-huh. And wizards <laughs> can get away with it because they can fly back. Brilliant. Okay, next one. Uh, it's a three. And uh, monsters, monsters. Yeah, briefly mentioned that um, as well as fully developed ordinary human hobbit, which was they were still called hobbits, long after uh, the, <laughs> the Tolkien people had noticed D&D. They never seemed to notice Tunnels of Trolls. Latest edition, they're called Hobbs. Um, and elves, and all that kind of stuff. You could play a wide range of races, including fairies you could play, yeah. uh, who can, of course, fly. As I say, there's nothing more useless than a walking fairy. <laughs> but you could take the rules that they got for making more complete sort of monsters and humanoid monsters and you could play them and then that led to a spin-off game called Monsters Monsters where you would play a complete group of these things going off and raiding a town or whatever and I ran a game a few years ago which was terrific we got uh, we had a goblin called Shifty Pitflaps um, <laughs> <laughs> I get it, they were all pre-gens and uh, I started from the Slarty Bartfars principle you, uh, you begin with something that's far too obscene to actually say on the radio and then you work it back until the point where you can actually say, say it. it yeah. So I ended up with a character who uh, the, piece, the player just had to say shifty pit flaps all the time. And we got a Shoggoth and we got a, a Lamia and a Vampire and then I gave them all little um, quirks of personality and they had to sneak into this keep to try and get the doors open for the invading monster army. And that was this, and it was fantastic. You know, we had a great time. And yeah, Benny the Shoggoth with his little propeller beanie hat. Not you, not quite your Lovecraftian Shoggoth, but it was great. Everybody had a good time with it, and it was a, a silly game. Didn't really seem to matter. On the other hand, you could turn that round uh, as a sort of a proto World of Darkness vampire thing. Yes. If you if you wanted to play, you know, the undead. It was all there for you to do. It had got the rules for it. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And that again, you know, forty years ago they were doing that. Yeah. Um, and then it was sort of rediscovered much later. Yeah. Although, to be fair, original Dungeons and Dragons does say you can play um, a dragon as long as you play a young one. Yeah. <laughs> uh, we should also mention you mentioned uh, Shoggoth, and I know that you first contacted uh, the Grognard Files. Um, uh, brought my attention to um, the Lovecraft variant. The Lovecraft variant, yeah. Uh, this is um, Sorcerer's Apprentice. The, the trouble with TNT is that although it's not like D&D, there is still too much to talk about all the ones. Issue yeah. 1 of Sorcerer's Apprentice. It had a full um, magazine which was particularly good for its fiction. And they got people like Robert Vardaman, Tanith Lee, lots of big authors wrote for it. Um, they also had quite a few games authors that people would recognised at the time and uh, G. Arthur Rahman and Philip J. Rahman wrote this thing called The Lovecraft Variant it's in the summer 1980 issue and it's just an article in the magazine subtitled The Lurking Shadow Over Pickman's Unnameable Hound on the Doorstep of the Shunned and Shuttered Witch House of the Terrible Old Eric Zahn so we just call it The Lovecraft Variant and it was how to turn Tunnels and Trolls into a more modern day so it was the, the kind of contemporary with Lovecraft setting and it includes um, how magic is different, changes to your attributes, kind of skills and background knowledge, and um, dark personal secrets, fear reaction, they call it, what happens if you see something that you're not supposed to see, the ancient gods and all that. 
and it's got forbidden books and kind of sanity effects, um, paranoid hallucinations, screaming panic, unimaginably horrified, uh, aghast, you know, <laughs> uh, or of course good old homicidal madness. <laughs> and it's got all those things in there that come out in Call of Cthulhu a year or so later, and Sandy Peterson um, has, a, has a freely acknowledged that he was inspired by that for the sort of sanity mm. and so on. And it's, because it's a magazine article, it's almost completely forgotten. Yeah. But it's it's really good. You know, yeah. it's it's yeah. Um, it's got everything you need and would recognise as a Call of Cthulhu type game. Now, if you just polish that up with the complete rules instead of it being a magazine article for a game and put it out there, apart from the fact people say, oh god, not another Lovecraft RPG, because there are quite a few now, <laughs> I think it would it would detract attention. It's, yeah, this is really playable, it's got everything you need, it's mm-hmm. a bit simpler than Call of Cthulhu. And there you go. Again, that's um, this surprising little game had all these spin-offs and innovations yeah. and a bigger influence than it appears. Yes, absolutely. Brilliant. Thank you. Right. Last throw of the dice. And it's a two. And if I look on my table, that's uh, the weapons. Yeah, I, I'm not massively into, um, despite having several role-playing supplements that detail weapons and all the rest of it, and having once owned Phoenix Command, which was nothing but weapons, um, I was never that bothered about them. But TNT actually has a remarkably wide selection of weapons and armour, including armour made of... Um, different materials. You could have, uh, if you wanted to, to play RuneQuest with Tunnels and Trolls, it's got bronze weapons. Mm-hmm. You can have a complete suit of armour, you can have sections of it. But because it's got all these different odd things like uh, Bagnak, uh, Prod, Chakram, things that now perhaps players. Oh, it does have pole weapons if you want a first shard, Partisan, Guizon, Scythe, Billhook. Nowadays, a lot of players, particularly D&D players, you're familiar with all that. 1979, well, you probably don't know what half of those are, and it has section 3.13, the weapons glossary, and there is a weapons glossary in the new edition, with the more unusual weapons, like the African throwing knife, having an illustration, and it's all alphabetical, and it lists what all of these things are, and this is actually several pages long, and it actually tells you what a sword breaker is, and what a trident is, and the sort of things that, the sort of characters who, who you'd be using it with. And straight away, you can distinguish your character just that little bit by having some quite mad weapons. And it also means if you're doing something like Ancient Rome, well, you've got your trident and net. Mm-hmm. They did articles about that as well. You know, it was all in there, nice and detailed, really easily explained. And again, this is in the throwaway, trivial little game that doesn't deal with the serious stuff. And yet, it, it's actually got it all in this slim little book. It's now not such a slim little book. <laughs> well, perhaps uh, return to that in a moment. <laughs> yeah. uh, I just want to, because uh, you, you mentioned being uh, illustrating, and I think we should make a special note about the illustrations in Tones and Trolls, because yeah. uh, Liz Danforth's uh, illustrations in particular are very evocative and very simple. Really done yeah, um, well, in fact, I'll, th- this is, uh, I'll show you this tail end of a quote, because I want to come back to this, by J. Eric Holmes, who edited the first 
basic set of Dungeons and Dragons in '77, and he's wrapping up a discussion of Tunnels and Trolls, and he says the TNT book does have Danforth's excellent illustrations, and the book is almost worth buying for these alone. <laughs> and, he, and he's right. And right. Um, it, I should point out Liz Danforth isn't the only illustrator, and she wasn't the first illustrator with Tunnels and Trolls. I think it's Rob Carver who was. Yeah. Uh, but she's the one everybody remembers. And before I forget to mention it, she also edited the fifth edition. And mm. it's it's really clear that if Liz Danforth hadn't, and she edited the new one as well, if she hadn't been there as the editor, it wouldn't be the sort of incredibly clear professional product it is. It would be a bit more chaotic. And yes. the, the reason I can say that without um, you know any intended or unintended insult to, to Ken is that when you read something he's done and sort of edited himself, it's very different. Yes, and she does actually say, um, you know, for his forbearance, why I muck about with his game. I have to thank Kent and Andre, and I, I, I didn't realise early on the the importance of that because, like most people, I picked this up and I looked at these black and white illustrations throughout the game. It's quite quite profusely illustrated, and they're just gorgeous. Um, people will almost certainly have seen her work in Middle Earth role playing and Magic: The Gathering cards like that, and, and lots of other games, Traveller as well. But it's Tunnels and Trolls I think she's most associated with because she was also a player and part of the writing yes. group. And it, I, th- I think I'm right in saying it was sort of her first kind of professional gig. Yeah. It's also interesting that a lot of the people involved in Tunnels and Trolls were librarians. Yes. And I think that that comes through as well. <laughs> yeah, um, the famous colour cover with uh, the, the party's been interrupted opening this treasure chest and the troll is coming charging through and getting hit, of course, by Take That, You Fiend, which wasn't reused for the Corgi edition, but it was it was repainted. Um, it's basically the same scene, but a single figure instead of the party, and a lot more treasure, and that was done by Josh Kirby, who at the time was doing the, um, the, Pratchett, the Pratchett books, yeah. the Discworld in the UK. I don't know if he did them overseas. Uh, so clearly they were trying to sort of get that recognisable yes. cover illustration. But it's essentially the same thing. Here comes the troll, you're blasting it, mid-scene adventure, which a lot of games really didn't get. And, and actually seeing sort of this is just an outtake of a game almost yes. on the cover, well, you know what you're doing straight away. You go, yeah. yep, we've got magic, we've got guys with swords, oh, that's a hobbit, That's you know, there's a fairy yeah. or whatever. It's all there. The, um, if you contrast that actually with the... This is the American box set for 79, which is black with gold text. Um, it's the two characters looking in. Yes. It's much more static. You can see the treasure, you can see this mysterious figure in the flames in the background. And yet, even though nothing's actually going on in that it's not the same action, she's managed to get this sort of wonderful... Perspective. This is it. We're, yeah. we're armed, you know. Yeah. He's knocking the bow. He's not aiming or anything. Got the health, just knocking the bow. It's all there. You're going to go into that environment, and there's going to be some sort of fight. You just yeah. know it's going to be adventure and treasure. The rewards, all that. And illustrations. I think we we get become really blasé because the quality of illustrations has become vastly better than it was. Yes. Um, well, even a few years ago, on the whole it's easier to get in touch with illustrators and um, it's easier to reproduce colour pictures and the printing and so on, it's all changed but those simple black and white line drawings that Liz Danforth did, uh, they're just fantastic and it's probably quite important that it wasn't like a teenage bloke doing all the illustrations because that was kind of the norms 
people yes. in their late teens, early 20s, were very often the fantasy illustrators. And you're dealing with a woman doing the illustrations here. And I think it does give a very different perspective. It's not all big spiky armour, it's not all big monsters. There's a scene of a wizard summoning something, and it's you know, some sort of demons coming up. Well, you'd get that in most games. But in TNT, there are odd things, like there's a stuffed crocodile hanging from the ceiling over there, and there's a character just opening the door in the background, you can see him peeking through with his sword. Yeah. And again, something big is going on. It's not the fight, but it's, um, it's that sense of a world that's not just about, here's a sword, here's a monster, let's connect the two. Yes. I think she does an amazing job with it. Yeah, absolutely. Brilliant. Okay, so that's everything on my um, uh, table. But before um, before we uh, say goodbye and, and leave uh, Watson Hall, I want to talk about what you're playing now. So, um, what, 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 how did your gaming uh, uh, well, life work? At the it? moment, uh, because I moved uh, a couple of years ago and I'm about to move again, I haven't got a, a sort of face-to-face group. I uh, do stuff over the internet through Google Hangouts and so on, which which works okay, and is handy in a way because. The players are um, everywhere, <laughs> just scattered. <laughs> you know, um, uh, Nick, who's also appeared on Yogsathoth, he's down in Devon, and we've got uh, Roger, who's um, who does uh, improvised radio theatre with Dice. He's down just outside London somewhere. We've got one player in London when he's not in Italy. Um, people in the Midlands. So that actually restricts the sort of game you play because we found some games don't work so well in that environment. Particularly games that have really complicated character sheets or involve things being handed back and forth. Yes. Savage Worlds, funnily enough, although it's not that complicated, because you've got cards for initiative and so on, it's harder over yeah. the internet. So we're playing GURPS Traveller at the moment. Um, a few weeks ago, we did Tunnels and Trolls. I ran this, Uncle Ugly's Underground. Um, famous for magic items like the Don't Shoot, I'm Only the Piano Player ring, where if you put it on and somebody is about to attack you, if you shout, Don't Shoot, I'm Only the Piano Player, they might not. They might just go, oh, alright, and hit the next guy. <laughs> so, not very serious. Um, and that's the, that's the one with uh, orcs in zoot suits as well. Uh, trolls. trolls. The trolls, the trolls. troll elite, they wear zoot suits and carry uh, arbalests folded up into violin cases. <laughs> very big violin cases. Uh, so, there was a lot of that, yeah. Um, so that, that, I mean, that that's gone well. I, I dip back into tunnels and trolls occasionally, but we're a group where several people run games, so yes. it isn't all me. In fact, it's not mostly me. And um, you know, we go through a lot of different systems. But every now and again, I think, you know, I'm just going to go with what I know. It's, yeah. it's you roll it out and you think we've played all these different games. Are we going to be a bit disappointed? Because sometimes you pick up one of those gems from your child and you think this is a bit rusty, isn't it? It's, yeah. Uh, no, it was great. Yeah. And, and a, that simple mechanic just means that even if they haven't got to grips with most of the rules, people can immediately shout out, I want to do this, and you can deal with it. Yes. Rather yeah. than just making up your response, you can actually say to them, great, roll X, and they feel like they're connected and the decision is based on something mechanical, which some people like very much. Yes. Yeah. So it's been going well. Yeah, good. And you uh, participated in the Kickstarter for the... Uh, Deluxe edition of uh, Tons and Trolls. I did, I did. It took a long time because it shifted from being what it sounds like, a deluxe version of the sort of existing edition, which had been gently selling periodically and it'd sell out and then do a reprint. The new edition, however, this is the hardback, a huge weighty tome with uh, lovely colourful 
sections, it became effectively a totally new edition of the game. Um, it's got a huge index. Never guessed there was a librarian involved. Um, and uh, this does have the sort of world setting in there if you if you particularly wanted. A lot more uh, some new illustrations by this Danforth, but also um, stuff by Steve Crompton, who was particularly known as the Grimtooth's illustrator. He's heavily involved in this. So lovely, well produced thing, easily recognisable as tunnels and trolls. Things like talents that you said they they're in here, and there are changes to the rules. But again, they generally say, "Here's how we used to do it." You know, yeah. pick your own. So um, that attitude just, uh, I think it just really appealed to me. Yeah. And they're still doing it. So it was a delayed Kickstarter. But you got all exciting stuff like the uh, the version of the folding GM screen. And I picked up this uh, embroidered dice bag. Yeah. And this, uh, this wooden box with big jack brass. Uh, wow. I'm going to be honest, it's not a very good wooden box. Well, there you go. Big jack brass is personalised wooden tunnels and trolls box. So that they uh, they did all sorts of stuff for it, and it was very successful. And for the first time in years, got the game back into well British shops particularly because um, there's a guy called Chris Harvey who produced the British version that was basically a direct reprint of the American one, but half size. It was all A5 in the UK. This the little orange box, the little leaflets. Um, and he produced that for years, and then I think when the Corgi edition came along, he, he got out of the business. Role playing was starting to fade in that kind of late eighties, early nineties. Yeah. So it disappeared from the shops. The reason a lot of people don't know it over here, I think, these days, is because you've had to order it mail order from the states very often. Yes. Now it, I have noticed it in leisure games and various other places online, and they may not have everything, but this deluxe edition suddenly it looks like the games you see on the shelves in the shops again and so I think they can actually put it out and compete with it and you'll, you'll see that and go oh, that looks nice what is it yes whereas if you saw the the old edition you'd go oh that looks old <laughs> yes. you can't help something 30 years old 40 years old looking of its time yeah so, so you, in, in a sense it's uh, come back to uh, fight again against the, the other game uh, TM because that's got a, a, a yeah. new edition uh, and edition. again, even though this is a huge, huge book compared to the old ones, um, it's nowhere near as big as that other game. Uh, and it is actually all self-contained. You don't need to sort of start a set because it has a solo adventure and it has a GM adventure, and and everything's in there. And that's something that I think other companies have very often either deliberately or or just accidentally not quite got. There was always the sense with Tunnels and Trolls that yes, they didn't publish a lot of extra stuff. Although, as you can see, there's enough. <laughs> um, although they didn't publish a load of extra stuff, you didn't actually need the extra stuff. Mm. And I think it was a viable alternative to D and D. And and the, the quote I mentioned earlier by J. Eric Holmes, this was something I found fascinating. And for years, it's got me very angry. But I, I understand him a bit better now. This from J. Eric Holmes, who. Um, I think he was a, a, a neuroscientist, yes. and he edited the D&D basic set in 77. He did a book called Fantasy Role-Playing Games in about 1980-81. When a lot of these books were coming out, telling people what the hell these games were to try and explain them, which tells you just how hard it was for the public to grasp what you were... Here's the concept. Everyone would always say, well, it's like a board game. But there isn't it's a board. board. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> <laughs> well, straight away, you've you've given me the rug and you've pulled it out from under <laughs> my feet. Yes. Um, but he, he's... 
he discusses a number of different games, Empire of the Petal Throne and all these things. And he says, Tunnels and Trolls. And this is the concluding paragraph. Says, all in all, Tunnels and Trolls provides a reasonable alternative to Dungeons and Dragons. The problem, as I see it, is that there is no need, no, sorry, no reason to seek an alternative with the possible exception of economy. The new advanced Dungeons and Dragons books are complete and easy to follow as the TNT system, and both are about equal in complexity. Now that's advanced Dungeons and Dragons he's talking about. Anyone who's played both games will say that to say that AD&D is equal in complexity to TNT is um, well, it's, an, it's an interesting view. <laughs> Uh, I, I don't agree with it. It's got a lot more in AD&D, um, mostly rules. But that that just struck me as such a weird and yet interesting thing to say. Why do you need an alternative to D&D? As far as he's concerned, he plays D&D, loved D&D, found it very early on. He wrote fiction for it, designed adventures, got in touch with TSR to say, I, I think a, a beginner's edition would be great. And it just doesn't seem to have crossed his mind that you can have an alternative view of the same style of game. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of people had that. You'd see TNT, and they were just thinking, "Well, play play Dungeons and Dragons, play the proper game." And if people like him were saying it, you know, it was very much an attitude that was was out there. Yeah. I mean, look at White Dwarf, which I know you've discussed um, the appearance of Tunnels and Trolls in there. Partly, probably affected by the fact that Games Workshop were doing British editions of Dungeons and Dragons and RuneQuest and so on, and they didn't do the British edition of TNT. That was Chris Harvey and Walsall. Um, but also, just generally, I think there was this tension between the serious camp and the silly camp, and people who wanted lots and lots of detailed rules to get the teeth into, and people who just went, "Yeah, go on, roll for it." It's always been that, and it's probably still there now. But they're. Um, uh, they're still around. The, the new edition, for people who aren't sure, is actually still being done by the original crew. Still um, together. You know, they, uh, they they may be mostly retired. Um, Rick Loomis is still running. He's at Gen Con this week. He's still running um, Flying Buffalo, which is celebrating 45, 46 years. I think it's like their 40th consecutive Gen Con. Uh, they've got an amazing background and history, and this game has kept going through most of that. And yet, it's still just this little game in the background that people don't take seriously. Yeah, it's well, very strange. Well, thank you very much, John. It's been great because I hope that people listening to this will be inspired to go out and uh, play this little game and uh, discover its charms for themselves. Yeah, I hope so. There's uh, there's a lot in there. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. How do you play? Hello there, Blighty. Hello, Dirk. So we're meeting here in this. Uh, new annex that I've built because yeah. I quite I liked uh, John Hancock's uh, Big Jack Brass's annex. I built my own. Yeah, and this is our gaming room. Now there's been a lot of requests for us to do actual plays. Yes. And yes. I don't like listening to actual plays. No. It's no. Not... I, I, it makes me feel I'm missing out. Yeah, it's like being a eunuch in a brothel. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I know that. There are a lot of people out there who like listening to them, mm. but I don't. With the exception of what we've heard in this podcast, which I enjoyed the Watson Hall um, actual plays, mm. but very many of them, are, um, they make me toes curl. It's not their fault, it's mine. It's a problem with me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I think sometimes you, you're experiencing, you, you either think, or I think, oh, I wish I could join in, rather than just listen to it, or... 
it's a very different playing style that can sometimes jar a bit. And yeah. it, it's difficult to listen to people who have a very different playing style to us. You know, and interesting, I suppose interesting, it can be interesting for a bit. And I think that's the thing, it can be interesting for a bit, for 10 minutes or so, to listen to someone's playing style and think, well, that's, that's different, they do it in a different way. But beyond that, you know, listening to an hour and a half of someone playing a role-playing game is, yeah. is a bit, a bit of a stretch, I think. And the reason why I like the what's and all uh, one is that it is what's and all, they just record as it happens. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and the humour that mm. generates from that. But very often when you listen to them, they kind of, they feel like you're listening to um, some pre-prepared radio show and everybody adopts the tone of a, a, a pantomime a principal boy, don't they? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, to deliver Forso- the lines. And yeah. Forsooth, yeah. I have come to thee. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. And yeah. I, just, I just can't. When I'm walking the dog listening to that, I can't walk because my toes are so curled. Yeah, yeah, we we don't really do the voices, do we? Uh, well, we I do, do occasionally. You you do a Brooklyn accent for for all NPCs, but apart from that, we don't really do we don't really do the voices. We did we did play with somebody once, Kevin, who I think once said to me in quite an aggressive way, "Say it as you would say it. Say it as your character would say it." Demanded yeah. that I did the the pantomime voice. <laughs> you know, I think that was the tail end of our playing relationship with him. It was, it was. <laughs> but that aside, um, I brought you to this new annex. I'm not giving it a name yet. It's so new I'm giving it a name. Okay. Um, to play a game with you. And we've talked about tunnels and trolls and solo games. Yeah. I thought it would be good yeah, to yeah. walk through this is actual play. a solo game. This, this is, if anyone listening, this is as close as you're going to get to us doing actual play. Yeah. This, is the, this is as good as it's going to get, so make the most of it. And it's famous for its um, solo games, and it... And it can lay claim to being the first, mm. the first game to actually do solo games. Because yeah, yeah, yeah. the story goes that Steve McAllister was in the military, and as part of the military training, they had um, manuals that you would use to kind of move around, so they wouldn't be like a linear. You would say, right, you know, to make this decision. Do oh, right. Do you yeah, shoot yeah. the prisoners or yeah. comply with the Geneva Convention? Yes, that, that yes. kind of thing. Um, and he thought the <laughs> <laughs> show didn't say that uh, I th- and then he took that and he said that would be good for your game Ken you know that would mm, be really good yeah, to apply yeah. and uh, Rick Loomis came up with Buffalo Castle which was the, the first, first solo, yeah. solo game yeah, so it's a clever, it's a clever idea it's, it seems now after Fighting Fantasy which, which came late and was a big big hit it seems like an obvious idea doesn't it yeah but uh, again, at the time, it wasn't an obvious idea, was it? It's quite, quite a clever idea, yeah. really. Yeah, yeah. And we're going to talk about fighting fantasy very soon. We've got one mm. scheduled um, in the new year uh, to talk about fighting fantasy. But until then, let us look at tunnels and trolls. Now, I've gone to the electorate. I've gone to the Twitterverse. Yes. And I gave them a selection of uh, games to choose from, and they've chosen this for you. Okay. I think I saw this on Twitter. Yes, they've gone for Death Trap Equaliser. Thank you, everybody. That seems easy. There's nothing in that title to worry about, is there? Death Trap Equaliser. Apart from the word Death Trap and Equaliser, which is a bad TV series with uh, Edward Woodward. I. <laughs> he's, not I in, is he? he's not in this one. Oh, right. Um, 
he could have had naked doom because the copy I've got is um, a corgi one that I've got off eBay and it's a double adventure yes you got, they did that didn't they the yeah. Ones, yeah and you got Naked Doom with it and Death Trap Equalizer and Naked Doom's famous because that's the one where you start um, start I look naked at do the you beginning. yeah mm-hmm. so you kind of start off you've got nothing, nothing at all nothing at all yeah you have to acquire things not one for LARP that one but no <laughs> Death Trap Equalizer not one for cosplay either okay now, non-cosplay I've taken the liberty yes. of rolling a pre-generated, oh, yeah. pre-generated character. Here we go. These are always good, aren't they, pre-generated characters? Never a disappointment. They always get exactly what you want. And to be authentic, I've presented it to you on an index card. Thank you very much. So have you, get, have you got a name for your character? Um, don't know. It's a solo adventure. Han Solo. No, Han Solo. Sorry, been, the done. Hannah Solo. Hannah, Hannah Solo, his sister. She's a smuggler. Hannah Solo. What's right. these stats? Look eight. Good God. Look eight. Dexterity five. What? Dexterity five. I, I took it as it was rolled. <laughs> Clumsy and unlucky. Failed juggler. Hannah Solo, failed juggler. <laughs> she, she's a failed juggler. She became a smuggler. They're good at rhyming. But this is a bard. Well, he can't have bards in Tunnel of Trolls, can he? Well, you can have anything. Well, you okay. could, yeah. She's, what is she? What is she? A warrior. She's a, a warrior. A warrior. Right, okay. With a sideline in uh, juggling and smuggling. But just not very good at it. Not very good at juggling. <laughs> Let's see how uh, Hannah furs <laughs> yes. in Death Trap uh, Equalizer. Okay. So I'm going to hand over to the host of the Death Trap Equalizer, um, Um Sol Pal Gas of. The shiny teeth. Okay. Now, as you all know, this is an equal opportunity dungeon. Licensed by the Chamber of Commerce of downtown Nosht. And in reality, it is more of a picket universe in a closed time loop than a conventional complex of tunnels and chambers. Everyone has the same basic chance of getting rich or getting dead. It depends on you. Some words of caution. The equaliser was designed to kill fools. Be wary of your choices, but be not afraid to fight when you must. You would be wise to take some means of making a light, and some money in case you might want to buy anything within. Remember that courtesy may be as important as weapon skill. Now, goodbye and good luck. I'll be watching, but you're on your own. Right, so, okay. are you ready to enter? I'm, I'm as ready as I'll ever be, yes. Okay. Uh, you need to roll three dice to see where you end up. Three d6, here we go. 14. 14. 14. Okay. So, now I've got to thumb my way through this. Okay. It's very exciting, isn't it? Mm. You've got to go to number 67. Okay. You are in front of a booth of the tin trader, who is a dwarf. He seems to be made entirely out of glittering tin, 
much like the Tin Woodsman in The Wizard of Oz. Okay. He offers to trade you one of his special tin weapons for one of yours. So give up your sword for one of his tin swords. Right. Okay. okay. Right, so you can either agree, yeah. refuse, or do neither, but attack him. Um, I, I think I'd just politely decline. I think I'll refuse. You're going to refuse? I don't want a tin weapon, do I? Tin, I presume I've got a, an iron weapon. I yeah. want a tin one. Well, Isn't it magical? I don't know. He's like a dubious character. What's he doing down here? Selling weapons. And is it made of tin? Made of tin. How many customers does he get? <laughs> What's the footfall? <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah, I, I think I'll refuse that. Politely refuse. Politely. I'm a charisma 10. I can think I can politely refuse. I, I can't see why you don't want a tin weapon to go with your lord. Dexterity. Lord dexterity. <laughs> Less chance of cutting myself and falling on it, perhaps. Yeah. True. Okay. The tin trader is also a potent wizard. For your discourtesy, he turns you into a living tin statue, leaving only your clothes and weapons untransformed. This spell cannot be overridden or cancelled. Your strength and constitution are reduced to a quarter of what they were before your conversion. I'm like the tin, she's the tin man, the tin woman. Tin woman. All right, thanks. So she's Hannah Tin Solo. Hannah Tin Solo, (laughs) yeah. (laughs) Luckily, your other attributes remain unchanged. Oh, God, that's all right then, isn't it? And to add insult to injury, he will no longer consider trading with you. Go to number nine. Can I not attack him? This is the trouble with solos, isn't it, you say? Now, if it wasn't a solo adventure, you'd, you'd attack him. Uh, hang on, go to number nine. Hang but on. But you can't. It's a solo adventure, yeah. yeah. This is what always frustrated me about them, I bet. You can't. You, you, you had, that was it, isn't it? You can't attack him. You can't do anything about it now, that's it. That's it. If we were playing around a table, you'd think, well, hang on a minute. Let's um, threaten him or capture him or make him reverse the spell. You do something, but solo adventures you can't. That's one of the frustrating aspects of it, isn't it? Well, is there any consolation? You've got uh, well, 300 experience points just for meeting the tin trader. Oh, there you go. And your ring is glowing. <laughs> <laughs> go to three. Go to three, right, OK. Apparently that's what you've got to do when your ring's glowing. Yeah, go okay. to three. <laughs> clank, 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 off I go. Bravo, you have resolved the situation and beaten the traps. You are right to feel proud. No doubt your character will go on to do great things, if only he or she can avoid premature demise. That's it. I've beaten the traps. That's it. What traps? That's it, you're out. I'm out? I've just got in. (laughs) (laughs) It was a short one. What, I've I've met the tin trader? And then I've I've got out. You know, made of tin. Right, tin. Good luck. Good. Well, yeah. There's worse things, I suppose. Could have died, couldn't I? Yeah. Get a tin woman. Tin woman. Go home. I think um, I think people would be pleased if asked for some actual play there. I think they've got their money's worth. <laughs> yeah. <I> do. <laughs> right. Thanks for that, by the. Do you need Do you need a can opener? <laughs> and they can opener. Tin of oil. She needs a tin of oil. Yeah. It's <laughs> squeaky. Till next time. Goodbye. Goodbye. Pause back.
I'm a really rather laid-back person. I know it's hard to believe with my rapid-fire repartee, fueled by intense nervous energy, but I am. I don't know why I was so serious and uptight about TNT when I was younger and missed out on the delights of running the game. This attitude towards TNT was shared by some listeners, such as Miles Cotron, who wrote the following. My experiences with TNT chimes with many of your own. Like Blythe, I pencilled in replacement names for the spells. I'd spend hours examining the weapon list and rolled up many characters, all of whom died in Buffalo Castle solo adventure, one way or another. And like you, I found it difficult to convince my regular gaming group of school friends to play due to the perception of it as a silly lesser game. Oh, we were daft and po-faced callow youths. Now older, I hope less po-faced, I see the beauty of the clever rules, but still can't convince my group to give it a go. Back to the solo adventures for me. I know what you mean, Miles. We have a packed programme of games for our current gaming schedule, so it's hard to know when we'll actually get chance to play it together. So I think I'll continue doing it on my own. You'll find out more about our Patreon campaign at thegrognardfiles.com where you can show your support by making a pledge to help cover the running costs of the podcast and help develop other projects such as the annual zine. I'm about to start a Patreon-only newsletter with my filleted sections of consumed media. So why not join the honorary members of the Armchair Adventurers people like Chris Stevens and Kevin Meitelmeyer, who have pledged a dollar a month. Thanks, guys. Patreons at over $3.50 will be eligible for a hard copy of the zine. We have some new people at this level. Thanks to Michael Beck, Peter Webster, Simon Perrins, Ian Engelback and Dr RPG Ian Griffiths. As a special thanks to those who pledge at the $5 level, I give them a virtual gift from a table from the game under discussion. There's not many tables in TNT, but there is one that uses funny-shaped dice. If a character has enough IQ, they can roll on a languages table. So this is for John Stevens. Um, I need to get my dice, and they're here. Okay. Okay, John. Oh, you've got the power to speak 95. You've got the power to speak to rodents. So it says here, beavers. You can talk to beavers. Have fun with that new skill. Okay, next up is uh, Steve Rumney, who's got 84, which is gremlin. You can talk to creatures such as leprechauns. Well done, and thanks. If you want to listen to a leprechaun, you should try listening to a sinister-sounding Welsh leprechaun. You should listen to more of the actual play from the Watson Hall Gamers at UK Roleplays Forum. The link is in the show notes. Thank you very much to John for being such a genial host and rearranging his furniture to accommodate the Yeti. I'm sure you'll agree that he had a great insight into the game. I'll be returning to TNT. I know I always say it, 
but there's still lots more to discover about the game. And next time, we'll be going back to Traveller and look at our experience of playing the Traveller adventure over the past 12 months and talking, in general, about online play. Until then, I'm dirtthedice at gmail.com. Adios, amigos.